Welcome back to Body Talk with Bex. This week, I interviewed another advocate from the Champion Health Agency, Cara, all the way in Australia. She's the first guest that I've had who's had a cardiac issue, so I found it really compelling. I do want to preface this episode by saying that we did have some internet connection issues, so if you notice some disturbances in the audio, I apologize. I did the best that I could with my limited knowledge of audio editing, so let's just jump right in. Your Kara, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Kara. Kara, okay. Okay, well, why don't you start at the beginning and just, yeah, tell us about you. Yeah, sure. So, hi, I'm Kara. I'm 38 years old. I live in Australia. And I was born with a very complex congenital heart condition. It was, I was actually diagnosed with pulmonary atresia and I had my first heart surgery at three days old. I then had a second at six days old. The doctors were a bit baffled because they'd never seen my condition before in Australia. So I told my parents to take her home enjoy what we got her because we don't think she'll live very long. Um, we've, you know, there's nothing we can do basically. And then just before I was six months old, my mum received a phone call from one of the professors that I was under when I was born. And he said to mum that he'd just come back from America and he'd seen a surgery performed that he may work for me. However, it had never been done in Australia before and it had never been done on a baby. And he also said, I can't guarantee that this will work. And my mum said, well, how I, how do I make that decision? I can't make that decision. And he said to mum, this way, Mrs Kiran, he said, if you don't do it, you're going to lose Cara pretty soon. He said, but if we do it and it does work, you could have a, I don't know how much longer, but you will have her for a little bit longer. So mum said, I don't really have a choice then. And they went ahead with a surgery, which they, I think, they called it corrective surgery. And, yeah, so I had my third surgery and I was pretty blessed. Like I lived a pretty normal childhood. I played every sport imaginable. Um, I was like every other kid growing up. I wasn't very good at sports. I always came last, but, like, I always gave it a go. And when I used to have my checkups with my cardiac team, they were just a bit baffled and astounded and they just kept saying to my mum and dad, I don't know what you're doing, but whatever you're doing, keep on doing it because we can't explain why she's doing so well. Like uh, we we have no idea how she's survived this long. 
So that was, yeah, so from about six months old till I was 21 was when I, I just cruised through life. I was pretty naive. I actually just thought I had a scar down my chest and I was sick when I was a kid. I didn't, and I think that's the way, I credit that to the way that I was raised because my parents never raised me to think of myself as like a sick kid or someone different so I and because I'd gone so well for so long we just I just thought I went down once a year to have a checkup with my cardiac team and then I got a lollipop at the end like I didn't really think too much into it and then when I was 21 I actually moved so I grew up in a small town on the east coast of Australia called Sortel and I actually moved down to Sydney, my young, wanted city life, started my working full time and just being in the 20s, I started going out and just living life and then was one, I noticed some things that were happening with my body and I ended up in hospital and that's when we found out I needed another surgery. So that was operation number four. And then surgery I had pulmonary valve replaced. Sorry, you're just it's cutting in and out quite a bit. So I did want to clarify because I think it might have cut out when you said how old were you when you had that third surgery? Yeah, sure. I was six months old. Six months old, okay. Wow. Already had three surgeries at six months. That's that's a lot yeah. for such a little body to handle. Before the fourth one, what what were you experiencing with with your body? You said you were experiencing some symptoms. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, sure. So I had started to get really tired. I noticed I was getting a bit breathless just doing like everyday Monday thing, mundane tasks. And me being naive (laughs) I actually didn't put it down to my heart I thought I'd just been burning the candle at both ends because I was in my 20s moved to the city you know I'm going out I'm working full-time so yeah it wasn't until I ended up in hospital that I actually realized oh it's my heart (laughs) what um were you just in hospital to check to check in with a doctor because you were feeling tired yeah, so I um there was this one particular day that I was at work and the office I used to work in was an old terrace house that had been converted into a two-story office and it had three sets of stairs with three stairs on each landing and I couldn't walk up the first three steps. I had to sit down. I felt like I'd run a race. So I obviously went home early that day and then the next morning I woke up and I was really breathless and I thought, oh, I'll just take myself to emergency just to check it out because I just didn't, I couldn't even explain it. I just didn't feel right. So, um, yeah, I took myself to the local hospital and to the emergency department and then it all steamrolled from there and that's when I found out that it was actually my heart. So then they called my cardiac team who 
was on the other side of Sydney and we sort of went from there. I went, I transferred to that hospital where my cardiac team was and I was seen under them and then that's when we realised that I needed further surgery. Gotcha. Okay. And so then what was the surgery that they decided to do at that point? Yes. Sure. So that at that point, they decided to do a valve replacement, so a pulmonary valve replacement. Basically, how they described or explained was the surgery I had when I was six months old, the corrective surgery. What they did is they took muscle from myself and basically man-made a valve, a pulmonary valve, because I was born without it. And I think they figured because it was my own muscle, it would grow with with myself, but it never did. So I actually theoretically still had the valve of a six-month-old. However, because it had been overworked for 21 years, it really wasn't riddling a valve anymore. It wasn't like it was just like a cat flap like door it wasn't doing anything wow wow thank you for explaining it's pretty amazing what they can do yeah no it's incredible what they can do that surgery i had when i was six months old is actually day surgery now is it it's a what now Day surgery, like you just go in for a couple of hours and then go home and they go up through the groin of your leg. Now they don't even have to cut you open. Wow. That just shows how yeah. it's progressed. <laughs> mm. It's very, um. yeah, you take the scariness. Oh, I guess you would be the same. You take the scariness away from your situation and what I find some of it, so interesting like just how what they can do and even just since I was 21 in just in the time frame up until now how our medical science has come along it's just fascinating yeah absolutely so I'm gonna take a while guess that wasn't the end of everything for you No, so then I actually came out of that surgery, obviously because I'd never had a proper working valve and now I had one. I was like, I felt the best I ever felt. I had all this energy that I'd never had before. So um, I actually just sort of grabbed life by the horns really and just that's when I started. So I was 21 then. And I started travelling and I worked in a couple of summer camps over in America. Yeah, just sort of just got a new lease on life, really. And so within that 12 years, so from 2006 up until 2017, I spent majority of my time back and forth from Australia to other countries. So like I said, I worked in some camps in America, did quite a bit of extensive traveling through North America, and then I went and worked and lived in Canada for, I think it was like three, three and a half years. I was living in Isla, which is where I actually met my now fiance. <laughs> and we 
also lived in New Zealand and back at Southeast Asia. And it was when we had finished the backpacking of Southeast Asia, I had noticed a few things. We were actually in Europe. My partner is from the Czech Republic and we were staying with his mum and dad and we went to go on a bike ride and it was just a flat surface and I really struggled. But I knew when I was coming home to Australia, I had an appointment coming up with my cardiac team. So I just sort of bushed it off again, just sort of my heart. (laughs) And then as the months progressed and then when we arrived in Australia, I noticed a few other changes, like I was getting breathless all the time again. I was tired. I was quite bloated and I had a what they call AFib, like my heart was just constantly beating out of rhythm. So I, my appointment was coming up. So we had that with my cardiologist and he said, and I'd obviously explained the things that I'd been noticing and he did start having a look at my heart and a listen and then he put me on the, he did an ECG and an echo and he said, well, yep. He said, you're right, there's been some changes. And that's when we found out that I needed operation number five. That surgery was quite a big surgery. So that was in the November of 2016 that I had the appointment and my surgery was booked in for January 2017. In that surgery, I got a pulmonary and aortic valve replacement. They did what they call a bidirectional glen shunt, which basically in layman's terms means they rerouted my blue blood so it just goes straight to my lungs. It doesn't actually go all the way around my heart. And the idea of doing that was to take pressure off the right side of my heart because my congenital condition I was born with is all to do with the right side of my heart. So it had been overworking basically, you know, at that stage I was 32, so it had been overworking for 32 years. So they explained that it's like an old car engine, like once one thing is goes wrong and other parts have to compen- overcompensate, you know, other things go wrong. So that was probably one of my biggest surgeries. They also did what they call amazing and star procedure. So they basically burn off, it's like burnt off all these electrodes. So like to, it's got to do with the AFib, I believe. And then they anticipated that I may need a pacemaker later on in life. However, because they were doing the bidirectional blend chance, so Theoretically, they were changing my plumbing around. They had to put pacing wires in before they did the glen shunt because they wouldn't be able to access that area of the heart where they're meant to go once they change my my plumbing, I guess. And so that that was done in January of 2017. And now because I had remembered the surgery when I was 21. I didn't think much of it. I just thought, great, I'm going to have this surgery and I'll bounce back like I did before. And that did not really happen. 
I pretty much knew straight away as soon as I got to the ward out of ICU and I started to come like be weaned off all the pain meds and that I knew pretty quickly something was not right like I think you just know in your own body when things you know aren't you're your best judge of your own body, I guess. And I just felt off and I kept getting told, no, no, the surgeries work. I think you've just got a little bit of PTSD and anxiety, you know, about the surgery, which is quite common. They call it the cardiac blues. So I obviously a lot of the my cardiac team that were seeing that surgery were like some of the t- best professors and doctors in Australia for adults with congenital heart disease. So obviously we take what they say, oh, okay, that must be right. So I I was discharged about a week later and we travelled the six hours from Sydney back to my hometown cell. And then it was pretty... It was pretty, a pretty horrific recovery, to be honest. I never fully recovered. I was in and out of emergency. Within a week of being home, I was air ambulanced back down to Sydney. Wow. I couldn't keep anything down. I just, I couldn't even put it to work. Just genuinely felt unwell. It wasn't any specific symptoms besides the nausea and vomiting. But other than that, I just could not. I couldn't explain it. I just felt off. And this went on till about May and I was in and out of hospital and they just kept telling me everything was fine. I've got anxiety. Everything's fine. So obviously that was really hard because it was quite hard on my family and my partner at the time and that and and my relationship with them because obviously they have all these top doctors saying, you know, she's just anxious, there's nothing wrong, and they were doing all these tests. So my mom, my my sister, my dad, my partner were like, you know, there's nothing wrong with you, I think you just got to get back into life, and which I, I struggled with because I sort of shut down because I thought, oh, maybe right and then also too there was another part of me that was like well there's no point voicing how I feel because nobody's listening so that went on till about June and then I sort of plateaued okay I think I just learned to I just learned to function on not feeling okay and I just okay maybe this is my new normal like the because my heart's condition so complex, I'd, I wasn't, you know, I, I didn't have anything else to go off. So I just thought. And then in December of 2017, I started to really go downhill again. And again, for about um, three months, three and a half months, I was in and out of hospital, ambulances. And in the end, we were actually, we'd actually, in that time, me and my partner had actually moved to Queensland because he got a job offer. So I just started to get on with life and the whole time I wasn't feeling okay. And then whilst we were living in Queensland, I started to go downhill again. So like I said, I was in and out of hospital, in and out of ambulances, and they kept saying the same thing. 
quick question. For those of us who aren't familiar with the geography, how far away is Queensland from Sydney or from the doctors specifically that you are seeing? Yeah, sure. So it's about nine hours. Whoa. Were you, um, so when you were in Queensland and going to hospital, were you going to one nearby or were you doing the nine hour drive to Sydney? No, I was going to the local hospitals. Okay. I um, I would just take myself to ED because I started, one of the main symptoms that I suffered from when I would go really downhill was I couldn't, I was vomiting, I couldn't keep anything down, I was nauseous, I just felt off and when I went to, and then those doctors at the local hospitals where we were living in Queensland were saying the same thing, there's nothing wrong. My mental health actually went down the gurgler because I thought, oh my God, maybe I'm going crazy. And then I finally, in about March, I started to notice that I was hot, like feeling really bloated and my stomach over a week just grew. And I actually have, you can see it on my Instagram. I took photos over a week and I looked by the last photo, I looked like I was nine months pregnant. So I actually sent the photos to my cardiac team in Sydney and I emailed and said, look, I'm, I know you, you you keep saying there's nothing wrong, but I really still don't feel okay. I still can't keep anything down, yet this is what my stomach looks like. So in response to that, they responded pretty quickly. I and they said, know. look, we can get you down here. I know. So they said, we can get you down, back down to Sydney to do tests. However, we do have a wonderful colleague who is a cardiologist who also specialises in adults who were born with congenital heart disease and he works out of one of the main hospitals in Brisbane, which is was only like an hour up the road. So I said, oh, okay, I'll, I'll go to, I'll see him because there's no point going to Sydney. And thank goodness for that man because two days later I had an appointment. He had never met me before and he took one look at me and said, you're in heart failure. He then sent me home. He put me on a fluid restriction. He put me on a, a lot of cardiac meds. And then a few days later he admitted me to the hospital he was working at and they drained two and a half to three litres of fluid and blood that had not been pumped properly that whole year since that surgery and it was actually pooling in my liver and my abdomen and I'd actually gone into liver failure. Oh, my gosh. And the minute that that fluid was gone, I felt, a hundred times better, like so no wonder I couldn't keep anything down because that was like just nuts. And then a month later he said, What I'll do is I'll let you see how you go a month, but I'm gonna we're gonna do a right heart catheter, which is basically if you're not 
familiar with those. They sort of, it's a microscopic camera and they either go up through the groin of your leg or through the vein in your neck and they measure the pressures of your heart. Okay. So I was quite familiar with those because I've had a lot of them over the years. So he, so I came back a month later and he did, he did that. And that's when we first heard the word transplant. Me, his mum was with me at the time and he said, unfortunately, it's not good. He said, and unfortunately, there's nothing more we can do surgically for Cara. He said, what Cara needs is a heart transplant. She needs a new heart. However, that's... It's a very risky surgery and it's the last, like you've exhausted all other avenues. So he said, what we're going to do is try and slow the failure down with meds and just sort of try and push transplant further and further away. So that was in about May of 2018. And, yeah, so from then on... I was on a two-litre fluid restriction. I was on a few cardiac meds, a few fluid tablets, and, yeah, I sort of plateau and I would have um, regular checkups with this cardiologist. And I sort of got back to a little bit of my normal life. There would, I would go through moments where I'd go up and down. Some months were good, then I'd go downhill for a few months. And that was from May 2018 right up until June of 2021. And I had my next appointment. And just before that appointment, I'd gone downhill again. And we both looked at each other in the appointment and he said, you're done. And I said, yeah. I said, I need another plan. I said, I need to start a planning process. I said, I can't keep going like this anymore. It's getting exhausting, you know. And that's when I was referred to the heart transplant team back down in Sydney at St Vincent's Hospital because they were the leading hospital in Australia that specialised in doing heart transplants for congenital heart I... Yeah. Sorry, you cut out just right over the name of the hospital. <laughs> what was? Oh, that's okay. St. Vincent's Hospital. Okay. And yeah, so I had a, and obviously that was during COVID. So I had my first appointment with the heart and lung transplant team via a telephone. And I remember thinking, I remember being quite negative leading up to the appointment because I thought, oh, this is ridiculous. How are they going to? They've never met me. How do have an appointment over the phone? And I was very wrong. <laughs> Within the first five minutes of the conversation, the professor said, I'm going to give you a shopping list of tests and we're going to do a work up to transplant. And I immediately was asked, oh, does that mean I'm ready to at, or I'm at transplant status? And she replied, oh, honey, 
you're more than eligible. And the way she said it, it was like I'd been eligible for years and I can't explain it. It sounds so crazy because it's such a very scary and traumatic and hectic thing. But I actually, it was like a weight got lifted off my shoulders because I thought, oh, now we've like at least we're getting close to the end, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I did my all my work up to transplant. So what that entails is for any organ transplant, you have to do a work up to transplant and they basically do every test imaginable because they need to make sure you don't have any other illnesses or they define any cancers or anything because how they explained was you've got to be sick enough to need a transplant, but you've got to be well enough that you're going to survive it. So I did that over a period of four months. And during the workup, they were quite concerned about how complex my heart condition actually was and the impact it had put on some of my other organs, my liver being the main issue. So I actually have medically induced cirrhosis of the liver due to my heart. So my whole workup, they actually thought they were going to list me for a heart and liver transplant. However, they were really concerned because they've never done that type of transplant in Australia. And they said it may even be too high risk. So there was actually a good chance I may not be listed for a transplant, which would mean it would just be palliative care. So the day that I found out that I was being listed, it was quite surreal and a bit pretty terrifying, to be honest, because there was a chance that I may not get listed. And if I was getting listed, I didn't know if it was just going to be for a heart or a heart and liver. So on the 24th of September... 2021 I was listed and it sounds so crazy now because we celebrated because they said I just wanted to ring and let you know we've decided to list you and it's just for the heart and I remember day my partner said isn't it crazy we're celebrating something so hectic but we're like oh and it's just the heart like it just sounds so it's just yeah I love that it's just the heart it's so funny. It's, yeah. Can you back up for just a second and talk about what was wrong with the liver? Yeah, sure. So due to my heart and how it's overworked, because my issues relate to the right side, it's quite common for for people who are born with congenital heart disease to have issues with the liver because that's where the blood, like things are filtered through the liver. So I have lots of scarring and they call it nucleinduced cirrhosis. So I've always had to get blood tests to check my liver function and it's always been fine. But I think the stress of the last surgery and because things weren't picked up for so long on top of the damage that had already been done over the years, it just, it's just completely scarred. So 
they were worried that if they give me just a heart, they needed to be basically 110% sure that they thought that once I get a heart, because the liver can rejuvenate itself, but they wanted to make sure it wasn't past the irreversible damage stage. And thankfully, it's not. So they figure once I get a proper working heart, my liver will actually better from it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Thank you. (laughs) So you were put on the transplant list. Have you had the surgery yet or are you still waiting? No, unfortunately, I'm still waiting. So last week I hit a year and a half. We, once I got listed, I've had a few road blocks in the way so basically not only just the liver they have also said congenital heart patients who require heart transplantation are higher risk patients because theoretically our bodies have never had proper working hearts so they don't actually know how our other organs are going to respond so there is a risk of multiple organ failure so they need to make sure that the heart that they pick is the perfect and then also too because of all my blood transfusions and past surgeries that I've had over the years I have what and what they call highly sensitized seemingly high antibodies which they basically explained has shrunk my donor pool down because regardless of rejection meds I can't receive a heart or any type of organ from that tissue type because my body will just reject it. So my antibodies are sitting, or at the start, were sitting 98%. I had a procedure in January of last year called plasmatheresis, where they basically, it's like dialysis. They basically hook you up to a machine and clear your blood. And that brought them down to the low 80s. However, because my body likes to be different, They didn't stay low, so they've shot back up and they're now sitting at 96%. So they actually said they're that high that if I was in America, I wouldn't have even been listed. I would have been told too high risk. So they've basically said that there is a really high chance that I may never be matched. However, they found out about um, medication that they applied to get me approved for because it's not I don't think it's particularly used here in Australia it's not on the PBS so the hospital and the team had to build a case and put it to the board of the hospital to get me approved and then once I was approved by the hospital they had to put it to the drug company and I finally was we found out last month I was approved for that which is really good but they will that arrived from America this week and the reason I had to get approved was because the hospital is copying the costs but it's actually going to cost the hospital over a hundred thousand dollars so that I'm really thankful for quite confident with that drug that it will widen my donor pool so they explained that it's not 
yet been used in Australia on anyone in my particular circumstance. However, it has been used on a few post-heart transplant patients that are years post that have got injection. And they said what, are, what they will do is when a heart comes up that I'm compatible with, they will give me this medication through an IV. So they'll give me a round before I go under and then however many rounds I need after when I'm in recovery. And what they explained was why it widens my donor pool is this medication will act like a brick wall. So they basically can technically give me a heart with some of the bad antibodies that I've got that I've got and this medication will block them basically so it will attack the heart. So that is a positive, although it's really scary too, because they've also said it hasn't been used in any situation like mine before. So I'm sure they do, but it is scary because I'm sure you are the same throughout your life. Like with people who are born with chronic illness or diseases, you have to have so much faith and trust in these hospitals and medical professionals, and it's just really scary. I'm sure they know that what they're talking about and they wouldn't have got pushed so hard to get me approved for it, but it is scary having that in the back of your mind. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if they didn't believe in it, they wouldn't push it so hard to make it happen. But even just hearing that it hasn't really been used in this particular way, yeah, that would, I would be a bit nervous about it as well. <laughs> And it's really hard because as anybody, like anybody that deals with the medical world, like throughout their life, because of what happened with my last surgery and nobody believing me for so long or not feeling heard, it sounds ridiculous, but it's almost a relationship, like that trust is broken. So I, I have found... It's been extremely hard doing the transplant journey or starting that because I'm always, it's just second nature. I'm always like second guessing or, you know, I need to double check things because, and I, I sort of get panicky if I feel like I'm not being heard anymore, which I remember I've sort of come to terms with it now, but at the start, I remember I got used to get so angry and enraged because I was like, I never had any mental health issues. I never had any issues with the hospitals. I always had trust because it was such a routine part of my life. And then that happened and now, you know, I get mass anxiety going into hospital or when I'm admitted and, like, last month I had because my heart's obviously the longer I wait, my heart's getting worse. And I actually wasn't doing too well last month and I ended up being emergency admitted into the hospital that I'm seen under for with the transplant team. I actually hadn't, thankfully had an appointment that day and had an episode whilst I was in clinic and I ended up in ICU on all these different drugs through you know, an IV through my arterial line to help my heart beat and just little, like those sorts of things, like I now get panicky and, you know, 
I get there's mass anxiety with anything that's hospital related now, which kind of, you know, sucks. And sometimes I get a bit angry because I feel like, man, like I was so good with all this stuff before. And now I feel like I've gone 10 steps backwards, if that makes sense. No, it definitely makes sense. I mean, it makes you feel hesitant to say something or to like tell a doctor that you're feeling ill because you just think they're not going to listen or not pay attention. They're not going to believe you. And it even makes you like yeah. yourself. Like you're, you have to think about it and be like, is this really a symptom that I'm feeling or is this something I'm making up in yeah. my head? So it's not it even. Is. Sorry, it's it's like not even just the trust between you and the hospital and the doctors. It's like the trust in yourself and knowing something's wrong as well is also stressed. It is. And I think too, because of a lot of heart symptoms or anxiety mimic heart symptoms, there'll be days where I'm like, is my heart fluttering or am I just like or it's just exactly how you put it it's having that self-doubt which also is annoying because I was so confident before like knew me pretty well and now even if I know in my gut that I'm having a bad day or something's off you know I still have that in the back of my head, exactly what you said. It's always perks up. It's like, oh, maybe it's, maybe it's nothing and I'm just stressed. <laughs> yeah. You just have like that little nagging voice in the back of your head that's just telling you, maybe it's not, maybe you're making a big deal out of it and it doesn't need to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so that's where we are. So still waiting. <laughs> so what does waiting look like so every day is different it just depends how i feel i do so this morning i do cardiac rehab every thursday at the hospital which is basically like a light exercise program it's quite funny i'm the youngest in the group by like i think the closest person in age really there's like a third year age gap so it's quite quite funny i race these around the ward and then most most days I try to I've found that having a routine helps because at the start obviously at the start I actually was still trying to work and then I finally admitted defeat actually it was my boss who said because I started ending up every week in the ED because I was just burning myself out I think and it was my boss in the end who was like okay you know your job's always here when you're when all this is done, but I think you need to like focus on your health. And that was a real struggle for me, I think, because as human beings, I don't know, I feel like work gives you a purpose. It's a routine. You're earning your own money. So you feel like you're contributing to society or and whatnot. So I found that part actually really difficult at the start. Again, me, I think I'm always been a bit of a dreamer and a free spirit and I'm a bit like my dad. I'm always like, oh, she'll be right. So yeah. when I first got listed, I honestly still was so naive. I thought, great, listed in September, I'm going to have the surgery and I'll be in recovery by January. <laughs> like I thought I was, and, you know, as the, as the months went on, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe not. <laughs> but, 
yeah, I just try to, I, I've learned to listen to my body a lot. So some days I'm couch bound, but I still, even on those days, try to get out of the house at least, even if it's just for 10 minutes, just to, you know, because I feel like sometimes over Christmas when I was really going downhill just before I ended up in the hospital last month, I um, got stuck in a bit of a rut because I couldn't do much. And, you know, I was, so I just find I've learned to just try and keep myself busy and having a routine, which is very foreign for someone like me. Cause like I said, I used to be such a free spirit and, you know, quite spontaneous. And I, I'm used to, you know, I was that girl that just would, all right, I'm going to go overseas. I'm going to go work here. I just sell everything and buy a plane ticket on a whim sort of thing. So in that sense, it's good. It's taught me to be patient and, you know, a little bit resilient and and just sort of forced me to have feet on the ground, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It does, yeah, like it. The mental side of waiting is hard some days, though, I will say. Yeah, other than that. But, yeah, it's just hard some days not to look at your phone all the time and be like, because obviously I have to keep my phone. And it was a struggle at the start because you've got to basically learn how to factor in things that aren't common into your everyday life. So... Me and my partner, wherever we go, we have to factor in, is there going to be cell phone reception? How far away from the hospital is it? If I go within an hour of my house, either south or north, I have to let the team know exactly where I'm going in case they get the call because they've got to factor in how long it's going to take for me to get to Sydney. Like, So that sort of stuff took a while, but now it's pretty routine. But, but yeah. All of that stuff, it takes a bit because it's all foreign. Like even having your phone charged, like, or having your phone on silent, it just, you know, that part of it is hard because you can't switch off. Yeah, I hadn't even thought of that side of it at all, honestly. You just kind of have to be, like, ready all the time, even though, like, it's been mm. a while since you've been put on the list now. It's a long time to be, like, ready. <laughs> I know it's funny. I quite I giggle sometimes because it's like, it's like it's almost like when you're pregnant and you have a hospital bag ready to go. I had a suitcase all packed. It's been sitting there for a year and a half. That's like ready to go. But yeah. like even actually, that's one thing too that you know the day that we found out that so when that fluid got drained and. They did the right heart cath back in 2018. Mm-hmm. We, that's when we found out I needed a transplant. Also got told, and I understand why, why it was said the way it was said because they were so focused on my heart. But, like, remember they said, oh, by the way, don't fall pregnant because it will kill you. And I was like, what? Oh. And... They made me go get like an IUD, like a marina, because they said I even afford whoopsie. And that, on top of everything else, I remember thinking because nobody throughout my whole adult life, when I transitioned from pediatric 
cardiologist to adult cardiologist yeah. had ever ever mentioned that my heart condition could affect my ability to start a family or become a mother and I remember thinking what like I was so confused now I look back on it and I I feel a bit silly because maybe I should have asked but you just don't think like like because all my lady bits work so I was like I just didn't yeah didn't put two and two together and I don't think that should have been your responsibility to just know to ask. You're not the doctor. You're not the one who knows this information, you know, like they're the ones that are helping you. And if they're, if they have that knowledge, they should be telling you that. Like, I, yeah, which I found really hard to do. Obviously, when we were told that I was in my early to mid thirties, like, not that I would have run off and had kids when I was a teen or like early 20s, but if I had have been made aware of that when I first transitioned, like if it was in like a welcome pack or, a, or an information pack that you get, because that's another thing. It's not just heart conditions. Like any person or child who is born with a chronic illness or disease you would be the same like your parents deal with the doctors when you're young and then all of a sudden in Australia it's 18 all of a sudden when you're 18 they don't talk to mom and dad anymore and I found like I that took a while for me to get in the groove of because mom always for me and was my voice and knew what to ask like I didn't take any notice and so like I feel like that and that's something I often say, like, and I try to advocate for, for CHD. I feel like there needs to be, like, an information pack when you transition to an adult because, like what you said, I didn't know to ask those questions. And because it was going so well, even after the op when I was 21, when you're going well, doctors, you don't see the doctors as much. You don't think about it, like... So that part of it too was really hard because I, on top of trying to deal with the emotions and come to terms with the fact that, you know, I'm basically slowly dying and my only chance of survival is a heart transplant, maybe a liver. And now I'm being told, oh, by the way, don't fall pregnant, it'll kill you. And you can't, won't be able to carry a pregnancy once you get a heart because it's too risky. Like... That was, I remember thinking that was a lot because, like I said, I wouldn't have run off and had kids. But if I had have known that, I could have frozen my eggs when I was, like, you know, young and fertile. But now, because my heart's too far gone, I can't even freeze my eggs because nobody will touch me. Oh. Apparently it's got something to do with the hormone drugs and they mess with the your blood pressure and the pressures in your heart. So nobody will... So I feel like, so yeah, there's so many aspects to this transplant journey and to my my condition that you don't even, I didn't even consider had anything to do with the heart until it was too late, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had the same difficulty when transitioning at 18 of like, okay, now I'm in charge and the doctors are talking to me and I have no idea what they're talking about and trying to figure out what questions to ask. And 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's no guidebook anywhere of like ask this question here <laughs> at this yeah. day, ask this question, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's so true though. And I I don't know. I my mom actually found it really difficult, which I didn't even think of until she said it. I remember at the last surgery, after the last surgery, and then when we found out things hadn't worked. I remember my mum one day, she was being real weird about and cagey about, I must have an appointment coming up. And she got really teary and she said, I don't know my place anymore because now you have Pav because he's going to be my husband. And I'd never thought of it like that. And I'm like, yeah, but I always need my mum. But it's not just it's not just us who struggle with that. It's your family or whoever is your support system as well because, you know, yeah, mum's I mean, been my voice for so long. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't want to overstep any boundaries, but she wants to be there to support you no matter what. And, I mean, with a fiancé, you have a support system outside of her too, so it's it's like finding that right balance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a lot. Yeah. Um, everyone involved. If you don't mind, I want to redirect the conversation a little bit. I wanted to ask you, because I, of course, looked at your profile on the Champion Health Agency website, and I saw your picture. So I know you have a scar, which I assumed anyways, because you've had multiple surgeries. <laughs> it kind of comes with the territory. <laughs> and you've, you've had them pretty much your whole life. Have you ever had self-image issues because of it? Surprisingly, um, when I was younger, I used to think it was my own zipper. Dad told me I was part of a zipper club and it, that was my own zipper. <laughs> but I um, I must admit that's one thing I've never, I think because I've had them since birth, so they were just part of me. Maybe when I, I vaguely remember when I was in high school and when I just hit puberty and stuff, like, I sort of went through a phase where I would wear high neck stuff, like turtleneck stuff, but not, I never really, yeah, I never really, it never really bothered me as much. I, I've i always said, I remember mum saying if I haven't had issues or wanted to, she did explore, like, I think they have a baby now, sort of laser and you can, but pointless because I've had surgery since then, but um. No, I've never. I actually think I would feel the opposite. I think I would feel naked out. That makes sense. Like I've spoken to people and I've connected with people who've ended up having a transplant or a heart surgery later in life, like when they're a young adult, and they have struggled with it, which is I guess, understandable because they've never, they didn't have one previously. But that's one thing I um. I've always sort of, yeah, just embraced my scars. And also, too, they've always been there. So half the time I don't notice them. It's only it's only when people would ask, be like, oh, what, what happened there? And then I'd be like, oh, yeah. And for the most part, people approach that respectfully in, in regards to, like, asking you what it's from? Yeah, people are pretty respectful. I don't think I've had any situations where anybody's been like disrespectful regarding it more curiosity than anything I assume you're pretty open then about like telling people what the scar is from when they ask yeah I've always been open and honest 
a little like blase with it to I like for example I remember when I met Pav and when I was living in Canada my housemate at the time he's now a really good friend of ours Pado when I first saw Pado he was like sorry what had how many like because I was like oh I've just had a few heart surgeries and he's like a few I said yeah and at that stage I'd have four I said oh I just had four four like because I was so blase with it and with Pav because he met me when we were living and working overseas and I was at my best then because it was after that surgery when I was 21 I think he asked when we first started sort of seeing each other and I said oh I had surgery when I was a kid but I'm all good now and he's like oh okay so it actually was quite difficult for him I think when I needed that surgery after we'd finished traveling and a few years later because I'd been so blase about it and I never really spoke about it because you know I was going so well again just thought I had a scar it was really hard for him to come to terms with and get the gist of how serious the situation was because obviously you know He'd seen me at my best and then yeah. that was only like three years later. Yeah. We hooked up in 2013 and then by 2017 at the start I was, you know, so that was a big shock for him. Yeah, I mean, gosh, I mean, that's, I'm just thinking it's hard to watch someone you love go through something like that anyways, but then to add on top of it that like he didn't really know the depth of it. Uh, yeah know, and I think they're so like brush it off I mean going into the deep end good luck <laughs> yeah I know I think it's hard because like well I guess with anybody who's battling with a disease or chronic illness we're going well you don't talk about it all the time like you don't you're going well so you just get on with life sort of thing right. so kind of stopped us both in our tracks and it was actually a big up to me and also my family as well because we were so used to things going well that when we finally got told that the surgery hadn't worked and I was actually an end stage organ far it it's taken a bit of a, a toll and a bit mentally and a bit of like de- there was a lot of denial for for the first year I think and it's only been in like the recent, the last six to seven months, I think, that, you know, my mom, my sister, me, you know, and Pav and my dad have come to terms with it and been like, oh, okay, this is like, we weren't used to, it was so foreign to us. We weren't used to things not working. Like you get told, we've been getting told the risks of, you know, every procedure, every surgery, every medication for 38 years. I've, we just were like, yeah, 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 because it had never gone wrong before. So that, I, it was all of us actually that it took a while to sink in that. Mm. Yeah. It's funny, you know, I, um, it's only been this transplant journey. I guess now I'm older and because of what's happening, I've had time to think about it. But I look back now and little things, like things are starting to connect and make sense. Like little things I didn't even think had to do anything to do with my heart that I've since found out, oh, no, that's why that happened. So, like, I was quite low at school. It takes me a lot. It takes me a lot 
to like with certain situations like cognitive issues and stuff like that but then since search and fully finding out about my congenital condition I found out like things like that are quite common with people with congenital heart disease like little things like that so it's been a bit of a learning curve for me too so it's been kind of like a hindsight of piecing together symptoms that you didn't realize were were related. Yeah, yeah. Was well, there anything else that we've missed or that you wanted to share that we haven't touched on yet? Just in Australia, I know that we didn't realize until I started the transplant journey that it used to be a box you ticked on your li- driver's license form that you wanted to be an organ donor. And I actually didn't realise they'd changed that. So there's so many Aussies that will think they're probably an organ donor and they're actually not because it's not kept on file anymore. You actually have to go online to register. So the message would be just register. Don't forget to register as organ donor and to have the chat with your family because here in Australia, even though you're registered as an organ donor, technically it's not a legal binding contract. So your family can have the last say and they can turn around and say no. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't either until we started. Good to know. Good work. Yeah. <laughs> but it was lovely. Thank you. No, it doesn't make sense. But. It was really lovely talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Body Talk with Bex. If you liked this episode, please remember to hit the subscribe button and leave a review. I want to also take a moment to reiterate Kara's ending message. If you are not a donor, but you are able and willing to sign up to become one, please take a minute to do so right now. There are so many people who can be donors, and so many people like Kara who need help. So make sure that you go ahead and do that. For anyone inside of the US, please check the show notes as I will be linking where you can sign up. This link will also be included in April's monthly Patreon email, so you can also sign up to become a patron to receive that link. Lastly, if you would like to share your story or know someone who would, you can reach out to me through the website www.bodytalkwithbex.com or on social media. Thank you so much for listening.